0: Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. He is the executive director at Wainema Christian Camp. How many of our people have been to Wainema Christian Camp? Put your hands up. Absolutely. So we have, a, we have a long history, our church does with Wynema Christian Camp, Uh, Our own Pastor Darren had led uh, the week of missions there for 20-plus years. I don't want to say 30 because that sounds like he's old, but 20-plus years he led the week of missions there, and uh, so we're really excited to have Ken here. Ken's been a pastor in our community, uh, in the Oregon community, for many, many years. Um, An interesting journey to how you are here today. He was telling me before church he was a pastor over at Coquille uh, for 21 years. And then for seven and a half half years, he was a juvenile probation officer. Yeah, and he said those two experiences, pastoring and juvenile probation office, helped him become a a Christian camp director. And so um, we're very excited to have Ken here. Ken, come preach to us, come challenge us uh, as the Holy Spirit leads you.
1: So he just stole my joke. Thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to show you. So I'm the, my name is Ken Smith. I'm the executive director or camp manager at Wynema Christian Camp. Uh, I don't even know how long we've known each other, but it's been a lot of great years. Uh, Darren does amazing work. Glad he's been here so long. Just met Daniel. Uh, What a breath of fresh air. So you guys are in good hands. Uh, I will talk about this lady momentarily. I studied at Puget Sound Christian College And uh, it's now defunct. It's not an institution anymore, but it was a wonderful institution. And Arlene Skogs that was the uh, Christian ed teacher, leader, director, coordinator, whatever. Loretta was wonderful there as well. So they've been a tremendous impact. All that deep stuff you don't realize until 20 years later that was instrumental in forming you. So I appreciate them very much. Just talk briefly about the camp. Uh, this, is, uh, this is kind of what we do. We, uh, we live in the midst of, I didn't take a picture of the ocean because that's where we are. But uh, there's this eagle flying around that amazes us. There's actually a pair of them and they're gorgeous, very majestic. But it's just representative of the, uh, we've had seals, we've had otters in the lake, we've had, we had a dead seal wash up and they had to haul it out on a tractor. I mean we just had crazy stuff. But it's, it's a marvelous example of the wonder of creation, this fantastic, almost like a game reserve that we live in the midst of down there on the coast. Uh, and of course, we welcome our guest groups and some pretty fantastic kids to camps each summer. That's kind of the heart of what we do. Next slide. Um, we are working on two things in general. One is we're, we're playing in the dirt a lot. We're digging stuff up. It's Tonka trucks, right, when you were a kid. So we had a big excavator out there, put in a new septic tank, 1,000-gallon septic tank, and that'll lead to the next slide. Don't go there yet. Uh, Don't go there yet. Go back. (laughs) On the left there, the bottom two, we had to put a big cement box in the earth because we've got an older water system. We're having to put in some new valves and some new lines, and so we need shutoffs down down the way to keep it from just, you know, kind of going crazy in different areas of camp. So that's the way we contain that. Um, we're building things to help us better manage what we have and uh, rebuild our infrastructure because the campus is 77 years old. It's a natural thing we have to do. And then, of course, uh, in the middle there, you can't really see it, but we're putting in a new gate, partly for security, partly also to kind of differentiate between public and private. And then the last, uh, or the next slide, we are rebuilding the bathrooms in two of our lodges. This is one of them, Yamhill and uh on the bottom right picture is kind of what it looked like before a little bit and then we've been under the building we've leveled it out torn out walls and all that red coating stuff's called red guard it's because in a bathroom you got a lot of moisture and you got to try to keep that stuff contained so we're putting new showers in um, a new set of three bathrooms in that one and we'll do it at one other lodge and it's about 35 40,000 a pop so it's a wonderful adventure god has blessed us greatly with those things Final slide, just want to say that we're looking forward to seeing you all this summer. Come and join our camps, join conferences, come stay at the RV park, we'd love to have you. Let's pray. Father, you're our delight. Uh, You're the reason for every song we sing, just like the songs we've sung this morning. So we want to bless you, we give you honor and praise. Pray that what's uh, articulated here in the next uh, few minutes would be a blessing to you, that we would closer to your heart, and revere you more, fear you more, and know you better so that we can live after you, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I th- the scripture I was given was Philippians 3, uh, 3, 12 to 21, and uh, that may be the scripture for the whole missions month, uh, it's a wonderful passage. But I'm going to do something a little bit different, I'm asking the question today, what's a hero, what is a hero? So there's three things I noticed about heroes. Uh, Marvel Comics is a big thing right now. The first is that we like our heroes blatant. They have to have obvious exceptional powers like high tensile webbing for swooping along skyscrapers. Traveling faster than the speed of sound. It used to be faster than a steaming locomotive. Stronger than 10,000 men. And of course, ultra cool technological tools like bat ray guns and titanium shields. We also like our heroes good-looking or sexy. They're always wearing tight spandex. Check it out if you don't believe me. The most handsome and beautiful faces, of course. There's no hunchbacks of Notre Dame. Thank you very much. They're muscular and lithe. They're capable, even if they have that mortal twist that invokes our sympathy toward them. Which leads to our final consideration. We like our heroes only somewhat more virtuous than ourselves. Yes, typically generous or helpful, doing what is good, you know, they have to be able to save humanity. But they also have a chip on their shoulder like Tony Stark, Iron Man. A willingness to do whatever it takes to achieve the correct end regardless of the means because they always have a little bit of mischief. And there's that Achilles heel which keeps them from being immortal like kryptonite or a strong case of revenge. And so like every other culture, Greece, Rome, Egypt, who had their heroes, we're aware of greatness beyond ourselves. And to some degree, we aspire to be something more. But all of this is simply what some people at Marvel and DC Comics and Pixar studios and political parties believe to be the greater powers of our greater glory. In fact, these heroes are merely greater projections of ourselves, the more we think we need to be. They are super-uses, which is why we call them superheroes. Real life, true stories are virtually nothing like this. (laughs) Projections of our ideals can be exciting, but they never have much to do with reality. And so we see very little true glory in these projections. For true glory is entangled in what is real, and what is real shapes us and does not yield to our projections. This reality is exactly what C.S. Lewis had in mind many years ago when he wrote one of his most important essays, The Weight of Glory. He did not intend to write about heroes. As you will see, he was writing about a somewhat elusive but true sense that we have which derives from the glorious. But the sermon he wrote, yes, he preached it in a church, It has tremendous implications for just the thing that this church is focused on for the month of missions, champions for Jesus. Lewis indicated that in his day, if you asked 20 good people what they thought were the highest virtues, most would reply unselfishness, which has to do with not getting your way. In our day, the same majority might use the word tolerance which has to do with leaving people alone to go about their business with very little boundary and direction. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, they would have replied, love. You see what's happened? A negative or neglectful term has been substituted for a positive or engaging one. Unselfishness has to do not with securing good things for others, but of going without them myself as if my deprivation and not their happiness was most important. Tolerance has to do not with forbearing with others, but with leaving them to themselves as much as possible, creating that insular space. Now it's true the New Testament has much to say about self-denial and freedom, but not as ends in themselves. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order to find true freedom in following Christ, but nearly every description of this contains an appeal to desire. Certain worldly philosophers have held that desiring our own good and hoping for enjoyment is a bad thing. But if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures falsely satisfying ourselves with partying and wealth and sex and ambition and fame when infinite joy is offered to us, almost like a sad child who wants, wants to go on playing in muddy potholes in a slum because he cannot imagine the invitation to swimming and skiing at Lake Tahoe. Some people are strongly inclined to view such desires as greedy, self-serving. But that is because they forgot or ignore that every behavior entails a natural reward. For instance, money is not the natural reward of love. A man or woman who marries for money is a gold digger. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover. Similarly, power is not the natural reward of leadership. A leader who leads a company to exercise power is an egotist. But authority is the proper reward for good leadership, and authority entails power. There are intrinsic natural and good rewards. The fact is that the most delightful and substantial natural rewards take much time and they are not easily found. There's a lengthy time of difficult learning and routine that take place on our way to these enjoyments. I've been to college and seminary. Ask me about it. It takes a long time. (laughs) Some of you may know a man by the name of Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs, and this is exactly the thing he keeps telling people. It doesn't happen overnight, and it's messy. Take the girl who has her eyes set on being an OBGYN. There are endless hours of studying for tests, memorizing lists, visualizing vital organs, missed pizza parties with friends, surrendered thanksgivings with family, and eternal nights as an intern. She has been encouraged to ignore all distractions to achieve her goal. But something else has been going on in the meantime, and it's happened ever so gradually, as gradually as the sun rises and the tide lifts a grounded ship. In the midst of her tedious difficulty, she will have, if she allows herself, an awareness of what feels like romanticism, perhaps at that very moment when she finally lays the newborn baby in its mother's arms. There's something beautiful before her, but it's not in the things that are obvious to her. It was not in the informative books she read or her patient supervisor's advice, or even in the newborn newborn now lying in her mother's arms. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. Because the baby will need its diaper changed and spit up a thousand times. And will make itself as much of an inconvenience as a treasure. But the joy in that moment is an expression Of beautiful longing. I will venture in fact that everyone in this place has had this sense of longing. One of my own deepest yearnings has been for true abiding friends. I've ached for it. I've stumbled through many failed attempts and I have also been blessed to know the wonder of such friends. But far more often the reality of this world and most pointedly my own sin interferes with my true satisfaction. Nearly everything we use to educate our children is bent on silencing the shy, persistent inner longing. Like our heroes, our education must be blatant, materialistic. It must be attractive or enticing. And only somewhat better than ourselves, we teach humanism and not reverence for Almighty God. We tell ourselves that our good is to be found solely on this earth. We put our greatest effort into making ourselves as happy in this life as possible. But all our best moments and our utopian political plans bear some witness to the truth that our real goal, our real life, lies elsewhere. Often people talk about a better life. I've done it a thousand times. I know of no one who has actually realized, fully realized, their greatest ideals on this earth. The moment you feel like you've arrived, you're just as quickly missing them. But people keep talking about them. For even if all the happiness they hoped for could come to us on earth, still every generation would lose it by death because you can't take it. And so central to the history of humankind is that no matter how high and wide and technologically advanced we build, we do not achieve our greatest aspirations on this earth. But we cannot live without our aspirations. Our hearts are heavy with desire for that which this world cannot satisfy. this is one of the greatest indications of heaven because it is by definition wonder outside our experience. Now we don't want to cloud it up, pun intended, with romantic visions of those fluffy clouds and just cute cherubs and dazzling sapphire streets. On the contrary, the images from scripture evoke chills rather than desire. Just read the early chapters of Revelation. Notice how terrified John is in most of what he writes. Imagine midi- standing in the middle of that scene in those streets. I don't know about you, but I'd probably be terrified. And that is exactly what we should expect. For like our self-projected superheroes, if my longing is for a place created from my own temperament and experience, then Christianity cannot be higher than myself. But if it is real, I must expect it to be less immediately attractive than to the things that I like. Scripture declares to all of us who read it five amazing truths of the glory that come from heaven. First, that we shall be with Christ. Second, that we shall be like him. Third, with an enormous wealth of imagery that we shall have glory. Fourth, that we shall be fed or feasted or entertained. And fifth, that we shall have official positions in the universe, ruling cities, judging angels, being pillars of God's temple. The fact of glory is where I want to focus for the rest of of my time. It's very prominent in the New Testament and in early Christian writings, and glory suggests two ideas either fame or brilliant light. What is strange is the wide variety of Christian saints who took heavenly glory seriously in the sense of fame or a good report with God. You might call it approval or appreciation by God. The greatest expression of it is the Almighty's words to his faithful ones, well done, good and faithful servant. It is wondrous to observe a good child when they are being praised. There is an unhindered pleasure as they receive it. And it's not only in a child either. I have a little Rottweiler terrier mix, and my dog's tail wags vigorously, and I think joyfully when I praise him. Maybe he just wants food, I don't know. But there is a marvel here, a creaturely pleasure, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of beasts before man, a child before his kind father, a pupil before her teacher, a creature before its creator. This does seem to inevitably become distorted in all of us. But for the briefest moment, it is pure and good. In that moment, the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly love and fear was pure. And we can see the marvelous hint, can't we? Our thoughts are lifted to what may happen when the redeemed soul, your soul and my soul, beyond all hope and all belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to praise. She cannot be vain because she will be free from the miserable illusion that she did anything herself. There is no self-approval. She will stand face to face before her creator. And C.S. Lewis says, in the end, that face, God's face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or the other either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Notice how Lewis says our view is changing. Glory seemed initially to be ambiguous and threatening, terrifying. But glory, as Christianity teaches me to hope for it, turns out to be satisfying and it completes my original desire and reveals something that I hadn't even noticed. By ceasing for a moment to consider my own wants, I've begun to learn better what I really wanted. And this alters everything about my view of life. The trees and flowers, the rising mountain peaks, the dark depths of the ocean, snow gently falling, children playing kickball, that newborn baby in its mother's arms and the gift of parenting. Standing in the midst of this marvel, I am struck. This world that I had no part in designing and I definitely have no part in keeping alive tells me that I am certainly not the center of my life. You know, there are moments when I even feel like a stranger in this world. In fact, for many of us, this leads to our greatest fear, that we will remain unacknowledged by anyone. It's why the masses flock to social media, this yearning for acknowledgement and approval. You see the point from this point of view, the promise of glory? It's the only true satisfaction for our deep desire. Glory is a good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the true things of life. In fact, this is almost the language of the New Testament. Paul promises in 1 Corinthians 8, three, to those who love God, not that they will know him, but that they will be known by him. The terrifying alternative is, of course, that any one of us will appear last before the face of God and hear those horrifying words, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so Lewis says, as dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings we can be both banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all we can be left utterly and absolutely outside repelled exiled estranged finally and unspeakably ignored on the other hand we can be called in welcomed received acknowledged we walk every day on the razor's edge between these two incredible possibilities. Apparently then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is not some sad neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. All the pleasures that we currently enjoy. Dancing and birthday parties and cheering on our team. Marital intimacy and business accomplishments. Hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. That's my own, thank you. Homemade lasagna. Devoted friends. Bold singing in worship. All of these are just hints of this true home. They are only hints. Only pointers. We have not yet fully realized the home that we're longing for. These things did not make themselves. They and we have all been created. Everything and everyone will only find our rightful home in the one who made us. Living on the razor's edge then means neither trying to find utopia nor create one here on earth. This is the problem with all who hold to some form of earth worship. We were not made to live here eternally. But neither does it mean that we should despair of this earth as though it was only a shadow or worthless. For this dying earth and the people it houses remain a great and eternal signpost. I love this stanza from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, one of her poems. She says, Earth's crammed with heaven. In every common bush of fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. Tomorrow is Monday morning. Our Super Bowl high will have worn off. And what should we do? Well, first, of course, God has given Himself to us in the marvelous marvelous person of Jesus Christ who has broken the veil and opened the door glory John says as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth so the first thing we need to do is follow him he knows where he's going and then he makes clear that according to his desires Uh, his desire to have you with him, he has an equal desire for your neighbor. And so therefore it is nearly impossible for any of us to think too often or too deeply about God's glory for our neighbor. The truly heroic life is not life lived for my own desires, with me at the center, but for the glorious desires of the one who made me and will fulfill all my longings as I help others to know that he approves of them as well. This is missional thinking. And so I will close with this paragraph from Lewis. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, would be strongly, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Will you pray? Heavenly Father, it is is daunting to realize that we are made in the image of God, in your image. And we confess our sin today for trying to reduce all that you have made and the wonder that you are to what we know, to our material world. Father today we acknowledge in hearing the scripture and in hearing Lewis that you are the great and almighty God creator of heaven and earth and we are your creatures and we have the desires that we have because you've given them to us we pray that we would honor you and desire you and pursue you like your son did because only then will we know the fulfillment of what we are seeking Father, especially give us the strength and the courage and the heart, the love to seek that same good for our neighbor. Thank you, Lord, for this fellowship, this church that is lifting up your work around the world, sharing in it, delighting in it, that many, many more will come to know you, receive your approval, and be with you for eternity. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.
0: Amen. We invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.